On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson, we are going to chat about city projects. The stadium, Tim Hortons Field, now needs another million dollar plus fix. This is not the first time. What is going on? How is a still new stadium needing this much work? We're going to talk with someone from the city about that. We're also going to chat about pot. Yes, marijuana, cannabis, whatever you want to call it. There is a story out, a study out that says Canada may have hurried its legalization through and should have studied it more before sending it out into the world or at least into Canada. Do we agree? We'll talk about that. And we will be chatting about sports teams with names that some people will call offensive. Should they change those names? And we're not talking about it from a moral or political or philosophical position. Financially, solely financially, is it a good move to change those names? Stay with us. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. We learned over the last number of days that the uh, Tim Hortons field, still new, uh, needs over a million dollars of repairs to railings. Uh, if this sounds somewhat familiar, that's because it is familiar. Stadium repairs have been a bit of a theme with this place. Um and as I and I bring my first guest in today, I want to stress one thing just before he comes on, and I appreciate him appreciate him joining us. I think it's really important to stress one thing: this is not a city issue. The stadium is in the city. The stadium now is run by the city, but the stadium was not built by the city. In fact, the city had really nothing. To, the city was told they could have nothing to do with it. This was built by the province and a group that the province hired to build this. It was a, it, it, the city now is stuck holding the bag on this one and looking like we may be having to pay the money, but that's about it for us. It, 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 this thing is entirely frustrating. Um, and, and I think for a lot of people, Rob Gatto is the manager of sports and entertainment facilities in the city of Hamilton. He joins us now, Rob, thanks for doing this today. Oh, thank you, Scott. Uh, let me be very blunt. And again, I, I, I'll say the same thing. I know this is not the city's problem. I mean, it's their problem now, but it's not their, you didn't cause this, but what in the world is going on? So uh, let's take a couple of steps back. So back in 2016, when we had the, the fallen speaker on the east side of uh, the light standard, that uh, we were directed to do a, a six-week investigation of all the overhanging elements fixtures in the stadiums and one of the uh, items that uh, was uh, brought to our attention by uh, the engineering consultant that um, we had uh, the end panels and the anchors and the railings uh, were deteriorating. All right, but go ahead, go ahead. So at the time, you know, we, over the last three years, we've done minor repairs to the end panels and the anchors and the railings. So the concrete has cracked and spalled surrounding the anchors that secure the guard panels in locations on our west stands, upper bowl locations, and the east side's upper bowl. So the anchors are no longer engaged and the structural integrity of the anchorage is compromised. So working with our consultant engineer, um, he's recommended that um, instead of just doing the work minor repairs season after season is to get the repairs done now to mitigate the risk 
Rob, am I overstating it? Am I being too cynical or missing the point entirely? But to say that it, I, I, I don't think that a five or six year old stadium that doesn't see overwhelmingly heavy use should be needing repair after repair after repair, especially in the multi-million dollars. Am I missing the point here or is this unusual? Well, this is probably unusual circumstances based on our uh, consultant report. So, you know, over the past five years, uh, and I think the public knows that we've been working on various deficiencies and, uh, and the item in question right now is a, a latent defect that was noticed after could we uh, substantial completion back in May of 2015. Do you, I don't even know if you can answer this question. Was this stadium cheaply built? Was it improperly built? Are there, are there, why is this happening? Why are we having so many of these issues? Because it seems like it's a never ending story. Well, we understand that the building was delayed. Um, and anytime you, um, you know, the, the, the building, the stadium was completed in 18 months. Um, so, you know, they were, you know, time was running out and, uh, you know, the independent certifier had to sign off due to the, you know, we were close to the Pan Am Games. Uh, they were starting in uh, June of 2016. So the pressure was on in uh, Infrastructure Ontario and the builder was heavily involved to, to, meet, to meet that deadline and to, you know, to secure the Pan Am Games. Council says uh, yesterday they met about this and they discussed this and they've decided they're going to take a month and then they're going to revisit this and decide because it's a, a million bucks or a million plus to, to do these railings. Is there any risk for them in waiting that long? I wouldn't expect so now because the place isn't really in use, right? So, you know, the time is, we're in a good time right now to finish the work, to the, the repairs. Understanding that uh, with these uncertain times that we're in with COVID, it's uh, it's a diffi difficult decision to make. But uh, the repairs are much needed, and this would mitigate the risk for the health and safety of, you know, moving forward when we eventually are able to fill the stands, say in 2021, hopefully, and you know we're hosting the Grey Cup. Mm. Well, yeah. And I mean, you're talking about railings here. Railings are not there for decorative purposes. They're there for a reason. And, and it, it, you know, based on what you're describing, it's not like we can say, well, let's just not fix them because someone leans on one and it gives out and they fall and heaven forbid die or something. Not only does a city have a huge tragedy, but it's got a massive lawsuit then to deal with. I mean, these are important things to fix. Absolutely. And, you know, it's the handrail anchorage, so it's spalled spalled concrete and it was noted in uh, at the handrail anchor post so you and know, this sorry? the fact that the city so then the fact that the city set is going to or the council is considering this for a month that that's not going to be a huge issue again because the state the stadium is not really in use right now but fair to say that one way or another even if they delay a little bit this has to be done before we host the great cup next year well you would th you would think so um you know we're in july now so if uh upon council's approval again if um we were to put the tenders out say in um september or late august that would give us enough time to have everything ready in place for uh 2021 
I'm reading a, a line to you from the story in the spec that was written by Tevia Morrow today, and it, it just says this, the city, since in 2018, the city reached a multi-million dollar settlement with Infrastructure Ontario. The city has dealt with a variety of deficiencies involving leaks, burst pipes, a faulty main transformer, lighting controls, floor drains, metal cladding, missing hatches, guardrails, and mechanical systems. Has all this stuff been after the settlement? Has the city been on the hook for all those things, or do those tie in with some things that were done under the warranty initially? So that was tied in. So there was a settlement through litigation that we were able to complete some deficiencies, but some of the ones after completion and uh, the litigation are latent defects, right? So um, we've noted them, and uh, we're, you know, since the city became the owner, um, we're in better control of the building, but we've been, you know, picking away at various uh, deficiencies and now latent defects. For for you and for other people in the city, uh, and I don't want to go back necessarily and just stay too long on this one, but how terrifying and and, and focused did it make you when that speaker fell? How, how, how much then did that become a man? We have to check literally every bolt in the stadium to make sure that something terrible doesn't happen. Well, initially when it, when it happened, the first thing was it was glad that we were in an empty stadium. A hundred percent. You know, um, you know, at no time, you know, we're in an outdoor stadium. You're dealing with the elements, and at no time do you want to put the community, the spectators, at risk. At no time, health and safety is first and foremost. Is this kind of stuff commonplace, Rob, in your experience in, in, in new facilities? Do, do you, I mean, it seems like there's been a long, long list of stuff. And I, I don't know whether this list seems long because it's a pu- very public, very in-the-spotlight facility, and so we pay more attention to it. But it seems like this is an extensive list of stuff that's had to be fixed. Um, I think over time in, in buildings of this big magnitude, you're going to get a list of deficiencies. Was this more than usual? Probably. I'm no expert in in stadium stadium management, but having said that, it's not uncommon for leaks in buildings, but at this magnitude, probably not. Yeah, but you know what? I talked to a friend today and he he is a builder, uh, commercial and industrial stuff, not residential and not stadiums per se, but large complicated buildings and factories and stuff. And I asked him about this as well. And his comment was, well, you have a one-year warranty because the obvious deficiencies are going to be caught. And there's going to be mistakes that get made. That's, that's you know, everyone, you build a house, you're going to have deficiencies. You find those in the first year. But after that and after those things get fixed, generally with large construction projects, you would expect that you're going to have 10 or 15 or 20 years of very little things to do. I mean, right. he, he looked at this as being very unusual that this many things would have happened. Unusual is correct because we were against time. At, so you have to remember, Scott, um, you know, we were delayed. And then, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Pan Am Games came in in June. So substantial was made. So we really didn't even have time to move in to get familiar with our own, our own building. Of course, the, you know, we had uh, the project manager, myself, manager of operations on site dealing with the construction. But having said that, you know, May comes substantial completion, boom. Now the stadium was taken over by the Pan Am in Toronto 2015 to come into the stadium. And then there was a quick turnaround after the Pan Am games when we now had 
the Tiger Cats came back, moved into the building in August of the same year, and then we started. Then we started to play. We had six games, six home games, I believe, in a in a short span over a five to six week period, and we were still getting to know our own facility while the builder yeah. was still on site. And, and I want to stress again that, uh, and as I recall, and correct me if I'm wrong, but as I recall back when the plans were being developed and the build, the construction was going on and everything, the city was essentially on the, uh, the it was the Infrastructure Ontario and in the province and you guys were there watching like everyone else until you were able to take control of the facility. That's that's correct. So yeah. so it's not, yeah. So, I mean, look, I, there's lots that we can blame the city for in a lot of different things. This is not one of them, but um, listen, Rob, Rob Gatto, um, the uh, Manager of Sports and Entertainment Facilities for the city. I appreciate your time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Scott. Have a good afternoon. You as well. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. So I was directed, I came across a link to a really interesting article the other day that was on a cannabis website. For the record, I'm not a user. I don't generally spend a lot of time scouring websites about interesting stories about marijuana. Nonetheless, it it was a fascinating piece. The headline was, did Canada legalize weed before doing its research? Now, keep in mind, I want you to remember, this is a pro-cannabis website. This is not a site that is taking shots at the stuff, but it's a legitimate question. And one of the first lines says this, from developing a scientific understanding of the plant to its impact on heart problems, pregnancy, and diabetes, there are still more questions than answers when it comes to cannabis. And it goes on to say that restrictions around research continues to make finding answers difficult. The lead author, who also was the head of a study in BC, quoted in the story, says, in Canada, it is easier to grow the stuff in your backyard than to conduct research on it in a lab. Is this really true or is this a wild overstatement? James McKillop, Dr. James McKillop is the Peter Boris Chair in Addictions Research, the director of the Peter Boris Center for Addictions Research, the co-director of the Michael G. DeGroote Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research, and a psychiatry and behavioral neuroscience professor at McMaster University. He joins us now. Dr. McKillop, thanks for doing this today. Great to talk to you, Scott. So when you hear these lines that we, it's easier to grow the stuff than to get it to research in a lab and that we didn't do enough to really understand, are, are these things true? Well, I think there are two different issues. And um, I, I have a pretty good sense for the first one, which is, you know, did we have enough information uh, to legalize? And I think that that's a tricky question to ask because we'll, we'll never truly have a definitive understanding of anything when it comes to the policy sphere. Um, you know, I think that we've been studying alcohol and nicotine for decades, and we're still learning new things about them, and they've been legal substances the whole time. So I, I think that um, the, the question of whether or not there was enough research is, is not the right one to ask about legalization. I think that the, the question there was, uh, were based on what we did know, was it the right decision? And, and that's a fair debate to have. Um, but you can't say we, we need to uh, wait until there's some, you know, definitive understanding that surpasses, you know, all, all level of ambiguity to, uh, to legalize. That's never going to happen, as you say. Never so we can't happen. wait for that moment. Okay. 
But to reach about, is it hard is a different one, and we deal with this a lot in the DeGroot Center for uh, Medicinal Cannabis. Now, I will say, I, I don't personally know what it's like to get a license to grow it yourself. I, I've never tried to do that, but there certainly are quite a lot of um, challenges in terms of getting licenses to do uh, research on cannabis as an academic institution. Why? Well, I think that in some ways, I uh, there, there there are two answers. The first is that it is a psychoactive drug. It's important to have safeguards in place for uh, human protections, for safety purposes, uh, and to ensure that, for example, if people are uh, accessing cannabis, there, there's no possibility that it's going to be diverted into, for example, underage people's hands or misused in some way. So there's a certain amount of caution that has to go with all controlled substances. Um, but there are some special reasons that cannabis is particularly challenging. Uh, one of those is that, especially when it comes to randomized controlled trials, or RCTs as they're often uh, referred to, the, the gold standard for evaluating medical interventions, um, the medical products that exist are not like the typical medicines that exist. Uh, and as a result, Health Canada often requires a lot more information than is actually available, meaning that we're in a bit of a, uh, a well, we're between a rock and a hard place in terms of getting permission to study these um, products that are already on the market in terms of uh, trials. The, the irony of the first part of your answer, though, isn't eluding me, and that is you're saying, well, it's difficult to do these experiments because it could we don't want to allow it into flow into people minors or into the wrong hands or it could be a little bit dangerous and yet we're saying but it's fine if you're just someone on the street or going to a party or at home to smoke it just don't let a doctor in a lab smoke it because it could <laughs> harm them that that seems rather a strange conundrum it, it, it absolutely does i mean i think that the the reality is there's a very different set of rules that govern how you study psychoactive drugs relative to how people access legally regulated substances. And it can seem extremely puzzling that it would be hard to study the same products that you can buy from a corner shop uh, in a controlled, locked, secure laboratory at McMaster, for example. Um, and I think that in some ways I, I am sympathetic to uh, the, the regulatory demands because I think that um, it is critical when you're doing scientific research to dot every I and cross every T. Um, in other ways, I think it's, it's unfortunate that it's such a challenge to do this work um, because I think that we know that there's a huge demand from the public and from clinicians, you know, physicians and other healthcare providers and from uh, the, the, the general scientific field for more answers in this area. So I, I think that anything that imposes a burden, I think, is a real shame because uh, in some ways there are actually quite a lot of resources available, but it does take a lot of red tape. Uh, you have to hack your way through a thicket of red tape to, to get permission to do this work. So you could, and again, not that you necessarily have the equipment or the expertise, but you could go and buy yourself, Dr. James McKillop could go and buy himself some marijuana from the local distributor, uh, preferably legal, and go home and do an experiment at home 
but it would be much more difficult to do it in your lab, which is kind of one of the things this this article mentions, which says that for that private research is much, much, much easier to do than public research. Following the rules is actually slowing you down here. I'm afraid that that's the, the reality. I think that um, in theory, I, I will take issue with the idea that private research is much easier to do. I think that the, the actual state of affairs is that any research done either by a private company or by, you know, public university or any other kind of entity technically needs a research license. So it's not that private research is, is necessarily easier. However, the, the downside there always is that when companies are doing proprietary research, they may not be releasing their findings that are not favorable. They, they are under no obligation to, uh, to do that. That's their own internal um, research program, as opposed to academic researchers for whom the coin of the realm is getting our data out there and telling people what we found, good, bad, or ugly, uh, in the interest of kind of advancing new knowledge. Um, so I think that it's not necessarily easier, um, but I do think that it's, you know, that's where there is actually a lot of motivation, and a lot of the, the private companies are interested in partnering with academic institutions to support research, they recognize there's a lot we don't know and that their products really would benefit from objective verification of their risks and benefits. Um, you know, just taking their marketing materials at face value is, is not really um, what we would think of as the gold standard for any medical product, especially. Um, so there's a lot of motivation from private industry. There are a lot of academic scientists who who are interested in studying cannabis, um, especially for medical purposes. At, at uh, McMaster Medical School, people are interested in studying it for pain, for sleep, for anxiety, for um, a variety of different uh, conditions. And in fact, there actually are funding resources that are available. It, it's just, it, it is a very challenging time to, to get all of the approvals and compliance uh, regulations in place to do it. I heard what you said at the very beginning and, um, you know, that we will never know enough. We'll never know everything. And so there's not a perfect moment to say, okay, now's the time to go ahead and release this or make it legal. I, I completely understand what you said. That said, one of the people, um, who is involved in the industry, who's quoted in this article says, because they don't believe that enough yet was known. And here's your quote, literally, Canada is doing a population study right now, essentially saying, if you're a user in this country, uh, we're sort of keeping an eye, we're going to be doing statistics and doctor checks when you come in and we'll ask people, is that true? Are the people, are we at a point now that because so many people in this country are using now because it's legal, that really, if you are one of those people that information about your use and your health issues and things when you check with your doctor that this is all that you're really part of sort of a guinea pig well i I would say that that is both true and untrue to the extent that any policy change creates a natural experiment The, the reality is we never have enough evidence whether you increase the taxes on tobacco or uh implement a buck of beer policy uh, all of those changes represent natural experiments, and uh, the the changes that happen that follow uh, are on on the population. And so everyone living under those policy changes 
to a certain extent, is a guinea pig to the extent that they may impact their behavior. Um, we can learn from uh, U.S. states that either legalize medical cannabis or recreational cannabis. We can learn from Ecuador, um, I'm sorry, not Ecuador, Uruguay, where cannabis was made legal before. But we'll never, we would never have been able to know what the impact of Canadian legalization would be in Canada without doing it. There are just some questions that are unknowable uh, when they're at the population level. Um, now, because that's the case for every major policy implementation, what you then need to do is very carefully examine what happens next. And you can't be sure uh, it was because of the policy. You can't randomize people to legalization or non-legalization, but you can study trends over time and you can make some uh, educated guesses about what the consequences might have been. And in fact, one of the studies that we're doing is monitoring about 1,500 uh, adults from Hamilton from their uh, patterns and preferences of cannabis use before legalization to uh, following legalization uh, monitoring their behavior every six months. And this gives us a window into uh, how people are changing. And I think that they're not guinea pigs. They're Hamiltonians. They're, they're our, our you know, friends and neighbors. They're people uh, like you and me, Scott, for all I know you could be in my study. Um, but we need to monitor what's going on so we can get clues into uh, you know, what the consequences of legalization was. was. Was it a tectonic shift and everything is different? Or is it a bit more like a blip and Actually, in, in some ways now, uh, people are using different products and a little bit more, a little bit less. So that's what we're trying to, uh, to investigate. The only way I think I could be in your study is if marijuana was a memory loss drug and I'd taken so much that I'd forgotten that I took it and joined your study, just for the, for the record. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so that being said, then, because we can't know everything ahead of time and because we are studying this, we, we know there can be some issues with cannabis. We know that some people are, and correct me where I go wrong here or misspeak, but some people can be predisposed to schizophrenia with heavy, with heavy use or young people whose brains are not fully developed can do bad things to their gray matter if they use too much when they're very young. If we discover though something else that we didn't know down the road, I think what you're saying then is, well, it's not like we didn't know anything about this. We've discovered it, but we can't look back and say, oh, you know, we shouldn't have done it then because this is now a problem. That's right. I, I think that, you know, we will not be able to unring the bell of legalizing cannabis for recreational purposes. Um, what I think may emerge is that there are some groups that um, are differentially vulnerable um, or exhibit patterns of use that are troubling. Um, and if that's the case, for example, if we see uh, a spike in the increase in use among teenagers, let's say, then I think that's going to let us know that we really need to invest in prevention and in public education and in um, product control in terms of uh, keeping cannabis out of the hands of uh, young kids. On the other hand, um, I think a lot of people are, myself included, are, are remaining somewhat agnostic about what we are going to learn um, because in, in the case of my studies, what we find among teenagers and young adults is prior to legalization, no one said they had any difficulty accessing cannabis. It was a drug that was effectively ubiquitous, even though it was illegal. So it may or may not be the case that we see 
big increases. Um, and I think we're, we're going to have to course correct accordingly. Uh, and that may include other significant policy changes, but there won't be any backseats. There won't be an opportunity to say, okay, we're just going to uh, go back to a, the, the previous regimen unless really radical changes happen. And to be honest, Scott, you know, this has been in place now for a year and a half, and we aren't seeing radical changes that would, in my opinion, prompt something like that. And even in my own data, we're seeing small changes that are often looking like small decreases among some groups, small increases among other groups. Uh, and so I think it, it may prove that um, some of the worry was not completely warranted. Well, and you, you mentioned something a moment ago that I think is very, uh, very correct. And well, a lot of things you said are very correct, but it really uh, a, a good point, And that is, it's not like cannabis was not available to the population before. You could get your hands on it, maybe not legally, but you could have got your hands. So it's not like we have created a new chemical and dropped it into the middle of the population and said, let's see what happens. People who are using now, probably many of them were using before. That's right. I, I, that, that's the reality. And I think that that was one of the pieces of the puzzle in making a case for legalizing. Uh, the fact that it was so widely used and, and used to not enormous harms by many Canadians. We're not talking about methamphetamine or cocaine or heroin here. Um, and I think that the other side of this question was cannabis was legal for medical purposes prior to legalization. And uh, tens of thousands, actually hundreds of thousands of Canadians were um, working with a healthcare provider to access medical cannabis before recreational cannabis became legal. So I think that we're, we're talking about a, a drug that uh, in some ways was quite unique among the illicit drugs prior to legalization and in, in many ways operating a bit more like or being treated by the general public more like a legal drug at that point. Um, yeah, the one the one change is, I think, that once a government, once any government legalizes something, it essentially sends the message that it's endorsing it because the government would never let you do something with our approval that would harm you. And that kind of becomes the message. So the only change I would see here is that there may be a number of people who were hesitant before who go, well, it must be completely safe. Well, and that's what I really caution people not to conclude, because I think that just because alcohol is legal doesn't mean the government is endorsing it. Just because tobacco is legal doesn't mean the government's endorsing it. Just because OLG provides gambling and gaming services doesn't mean that they're recommending that people uh, engage in them, although, of course, their, their marketing would do that. But my, the, the fact that something's legal doesn't mean that it's necessarily safe or that um, the government is promoting it or uh, 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 avoiding the realities of the risks involved in all of these behaviors. Really, the only message I think that one should draw from something being legal when it comes to these kinds of products is that it is safer for them to be legal than illegal. And uh, therefore, it's a logical way for the province and the country to run that the, the, the administration of that commodity. It doesn't promote the black market. Uh, it, it, it does promote safer products. It permits greater uh, regulation and um, uh, oversight 
and in general, it eliminates the, the black market and a lot of the unnecessary uh, policing and uh, law enforcement costs of enforcing what would be considered you know, very low severity offenses. I only have 10 seconds left. I got to ask you this, though. You're a very young man, but let's say you had a 21 year old son or daughter, let's say 25 year old son or daughter, and they said, Dad, I want to start smoking cannabis. What would you say to them? Would you say yes or would you say no? It's a great question. And, and Scott, I have a four year old and a seven year old. And in not too long, they're going to be teenagers. And I think all the time about what our approach is going to be. Um, would I encourage them to? Uh, how would I approach uh, cannabis differently from alcohol or similarly to? And there are people who can, who've made strong cases that uh, in many ways cannabis is safer than alcohol uh, in terms of recreational substance use. I don't have a great black and white answer for you. I'll be totally honest. And I get to uh, wait probably for oh, <laughs> you get some time. before I have to, uh, to broach it. But I think that for parents, it's about pros and cons and understanding what the risks are and how to help their kids make good decisions and minimize those risks as much as possible across the board for alcohol, for tobacco, for cannabis. Well, for two decades from now, when my question becomes applicable, hopefully we'll have some more answers by then. You'll have even a better answer for them. Uh, James McKillop, always appreciate having you on the show. Thanks for taking time today. Great to talk to you, Scott. Have a great day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. There has been an ongoing, and when I say ongoing, I mean ongoing discussion. We're talking years, decades now, about certain sports franchises and whether or not they should change their name. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. The Washington Redskins, the Cleveland Indians, the Atlanta Braves, uh, the Florida State Seminoles, the yeah, go on and on, the Edmonton Eskimos. And, you know, these days with the way things are going, there is even more attention being put on this. Well, to the point that the Washington Redskins and Cleveland Indians, two franchises that until now had adamantly, adamantly, refuse to entertain the idea of changing their name, have both said, we're looking into it. The Cleveland Indians, keep in mind, about two or three years ago, got rid of their Chief Wahoo logo and just went with Indians. But now they're talking about changing the whole thing. We can have a discussion someday about the philosophy, the belief, the morals, the politics, the everything behind that name change. But for right now, I want to bring in Dr. Michael Narain, who is a professor in Brock University's sports management program. Uh, Dr. Narain, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. This seems like, again, leaving out all the other stuff that may drive a team to change a name. This seems like if you own a team or if you're an investor in a team, the single greatest financial opportunity in your lifetime, if you could somehow have a way out and a reason to change a name and all the spinoff things that could open up your bank vaults. This seems like a perfect opportunity for them. Yeah, it was, it was seen that way. Um, the, the very first thing that we need to, to understand, though, is that you know brands don't necessarily want to change their marks, uh, their logos, and their, their identity necessarily. Um, you know, brands and organizations like the Cleveland Indians, like the Washingtonians, as I'll call them, uh, they invest a lot of time and effort and, and resources into building their brand. And brands are obviously bigger than just the logo, they're bigger than just the name. It's what the organization stands for. Um, and, and so when you invest 
you know, years and years and decades and generations as, you know, Dan Snyder, the owner of the Washington Washingtonians, as I'll call them, uh, likes to purport, um, it's very hard to move away from that because you've built a sense of uh, camaraderie, you've built a sense of identity with not only your internal staff members, your athletes, uh, but also your stakeholders external to the organization. So that's obviously your fans and the media sponsors um, and, and other stakeholders as well, whether it's, you know, the up and coming athletes, et cetera. So, um, you know, brand equity is a very important part of this conversation. Brands don't necessarily just want, as I mentioned, want to change things just because, you know, whether it's a political whim or, uh, you know, we, we thought the colors were ugly one day, they will invest time and effort and energy into wanting to make it the symbol of that organization. And you let know, me jump in for one sec, though, about the yeah. brand idea. And I want you to continue, but let me just jump in for one sec, because the idea for me, and maybe I'm wrong, of the brand is that you build something that people identify with and you build this community around something. But if you've worked and you've got that community, and they are loyal to whether it's the brand or the team or the whatever, do you not think that it would be an easy transition to just pick them up and move them? If it's the same team, just under a different name, would it not be an easy move? No, it's actually a, a far more difficult move. And that's why you see a lot of, you know, if you jump onto the forums and online and you look at the vitriol, specifically in the case of Washington, and even, you know, I, I've been following along with the Edmonton Eskimos case as well, there are staunch supporters of the brand because that is what they know and love and what they, as a fan, have invested into that community. And so it's very hard to part with that idea of the name, the logo, the colors. And while those things can be changed, again, it's this sense of symbolism, it's the sense of identity and, and that community. And when you're saying, no, your community is wrong or um, uh, you know, it, it should be different. You know, that's that's hard for not only the fans, the, the people who are supporting the organization, but internally within the organization itself. Uh, and but you know, so it's very easy. You know, on one hand, uh, Scott, as, as you're mentioning, to say, well, you know, if you change your your symbols, uh, you can get a new jersey, you can get a new logo, you can sell more merchandise. That's a very simplistic argument because if the community doesn't adapt and doesn't embrace that new uh, you know, sense of, of branding, all that equity that you've built over generations is now lost, and you don't necessarily have that uh, coming back to the fore. Now, that's not to say that fans of the Washington NFL team or the Edmonton Eskimos or the, you know, the Cleveland Indians aren't necessarily – they're, they're not going to necessarily stop being fans tomorrow. But there will be a small proportion of, the, of that group that says, you know what, I don't like what's happening here. And, and then obviously there's that political argument as well. But that say, you know what, I'm not going to buy the new Nike jersey or I'm not going to buy the new New Era hat. Instead, I'm going to keep my old uh, symbols and markers of that community that I felt a part of. Do you not though, uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a terrific point that I hadn't even thought of, but do you not also then assuming you're going to do market research on this before choosing what name or logo, or whatever, you may lose some of the people buying a product that they've really affiliated with it. But all of a sudden a whole bunch of other people have said, I will never buy that sweater because of what it means. All of a sudden they're now willing to buy it. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, for the 5% of people hypothetically that, are going to, you know, die on the hill that, no, oh, I want to keep that, those symbols and colors. Uh, there'll be an additional five to even more, 10% that 
that will be of a new generation that will jump on and say, you know what, I'm going to support this brand and this fan community, or excuse me, support this team community because of what they've done by changing their symbols and markers. But, you know, as I was uh, alluding to off the top, you know, these brands invest a lot of time and energy into building equity into their symbols and, and their name. Um, and that also leads into another part of this conversation, which is about nostalgia marketing. And that's a very important piece in the sport industry, which is being able to draw back to your lineage. If, if you think, you know, even here in, on, in a Southern Ontario example, the Toronto Blue Jays are, you know, hang their hat on the 92-93 World Series. You know, they bring back, you know, the Joe Carters and the Roberto Alomars for the, the various events. Um, and, you, you know, the Toronto Maple Leafs, you know, they, they hang their hat on 1967. So, you know, trying to draw back to nostalgia and to your lineage, that's a very important connective tissue uh, to the sport industry is that, you know, our, our forefathers and our foremothers, they were fans of that same team, you know, in the 1920s, the 1930s, the 40s, 50s, et cetera. And so having that connection makes us feel a part of something much bigger. Um, and, and that's a very important connective piece to this entire conversation, which is one of the reasons why you see these fans who are so adamantly against their favorite teams wanting to change their mark, because you lose that not only sense of personal identity, but that sense of lineage with your family um, and, and your, your greater community uh, that they were all fans generations ago of the same product. Which leaves certain places with a brilliant opportunity, other places that might be more difficult. But let's go to the Cleveland Indians for a second, because your point that says, okay, we want to make sure that we have that lineage, that we can talk about the history and everything else. Well, the Cleveland Indians have been around for a long time, but before them, there was a team called the Cleveland Spiders. So you mm -hmm. could still go to, it's perfect, I would think, for them. You can still go to history. You can still talk about back in the day. And you've got a name that I would think, if you have a semi-intelligent graphic designer and marketer, you could work magic with something like the Cleveland Spiders and check off all your boxes. Old, tradition, cool logo, great merchandise, all the rest. There's one now, it might be harder for in Washington. I don't know, I can't even remember what was before the, the football team, but there are opportunities for certain teams here to do all those things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in the case of the, the Cleveland Indians, yeah, yeah, as you mentioned, they were the Spiders. And the only reason they were renamed the Indians, as ridiculous as it sounds, was there was a Native American on the Cleveland Spiders. And so, you know, sort of, you know, colloquially, they were known as, oh, well, they're the Indians because they've got an Indian on the team. So, it, you know, it doesn't even make much sense. But again, that's those were the times in the, the you know turn of the century. Um, but yeah, you know, one of the issues that will the Cleveland team in, in particular will then have to uh, reconcile with is, uh, you know, intellectual property. You know, Spiders is a name that is is already being used by, I believe it's the Richmond uh, Richmond University. Team. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, trying to deal with that, whether or not Richmond and, and you know, the Vegas Golden Knights uh, experienced that as well because they wanted to name their team. You know, the, the Black Knights, which is obviously the, the Army, the NCAA Army team. And so th th there's a lot of intellectual problems. I thought it was the Monty there. Python guy. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> but, so, so Cleveland will have to reconcile with that. But it's not, I mean, that is not the uh, biggest challenge. You know, I think it, it's going to be a greater challenge for the Washington NFL team, uh, simply because, and again, trying to stay away from the politics, but uh Football in the United States tends to be a little bit more right-wing and conservative to begin with. And so the fans that you have of that product and of that brand specifically are going to be more inclined to uh, resent any change. 
Um, some of the names that have come through have obviously been similar in nature. The Red Tails, referring to the African American uh, Army, or sorry, excuse me, Air Force uh, squadron that uh, was based out of Washington. Uh, so the Red Tails, the uh, Washington Warriors has been floated, and the Hogs, uh, you know, sort of like a pig uh, metaphor there. But um, yeah, so there's different options to go with. But again, you know, for people who have been fans of the team for such a long time, it is a difficult proposition for them, even though for the average objective person, it might seem like a no-brainer, just buy some new merchandise, just, you know, paint your face a different color scheme and go about your way. For, for Johnny Sixpack, who loves his Washington NFL team, that, that's a very hard thing for him to do, unfortunately. Okay, let, let us assume for a second, let, let's just play the game here and, and hypothesize for a moment that they decide they were going to do it because that's really what we're talking about here. Let's say they said, you know what, we've looked at this, we think we can find a name that's going to satisfy enough people that we can be okay with this. What sort of, I mean, I know I don't, you haven't done a deep study on this, but rough numbers, what kind of numbers are we talking about that this could potentially, if you do it right, that this could be worth to a franchise when you sell merchandise, when you sell memorabilia hats and shirts and all the other stuff that that comes up. I mean, it's got to be in the, for a big team in one of the, you know, in the NFL and major league baseball, it's got to be in the billions of dollars. Well, I mean, for the Washington NFL team, I wouldn't say necessarily in the billions. It's definitely going to be in the millions of dollars. The, the, the other, you know, it, it's, I think we're looking at this from the wrong perspective, though. Instead of thinking that this team, uh, the, regardless of the franchise, whether it's the, the Indians or, or the Washington team, that they're going to magically make new money, I think we need to look at the opposite perspective, which is if they don't do this, they're going to lose money. Because, you know, currently what is happening is there's a lot of corporate pressure coming through from Nike, from FedEx, which are two major partners of the Washington NFL team. And so if they, you know, obviously uh, I'm sure a lot of the listeners have already been in tune to this, that Nike has dropped all of the Washington NFL gear from their website. That is a very critical piece to this pie. And one of the major catalysts for the Washington NFL organization to say, okay, well, you know what, now we need to do things. Because they've been adamantly and staunchly opposed to wanting to change their name for such a long time. Dan Snyder, the owner, came out in 2013, I believe, and said, absolutely not caps lock, you can put it down on paper. So, you know, the fact that they're going to lose money and lose sponsors, it's, it's sort of a, um, it's not necessarily a revenue generator, but instead of, it's, it's sort of promoting and protecting revenue loss. Um, that being said, there is a uh, argument that, uh, that I'm making here that the Washington NFL team may change their name and logo, but keep the current color scheme of the red and the yellow. And in doing so, a lot of those, again, right-wing conservative fans might, who are, are, again, so attached to the former brand, might just bring their old jerseys, bring their old memorabilia. And so in that situation, they're not necessarily buying new things. They're sort of adapting their old, uh, the old branding to the new team name. Um, and just sort of not acknowledging that the team has changed. And, and we saw that to a lesser extent with the Winnipeg Jets as well. You know, while the Jets, they had to, re, they had to keep the same name. They, they couldn't choose anything else. They, they knew that. Um, they still went with that same similar color motif. And so you still saw, while they sold a lot of new merchandise, you still saw a lot of older fans wear their old, you know, Dale Howardchuck and, uh, you know, Timu Solani jerseys. And you'll see that as well with the Washington, whatever they call themselves. You'll still see old jerseys of, 
you know, the, you know, the Josh Norms of the world and the Patrick Ramseys and, and the Clinton Portises. So, um, yeah, it's, it's likely to be the case that even though they may rebrand to something new, that there will be that 5 to 10% that will say, no, I'm just going to continue to wear what I've been wearing and support the old name as I know and love it. And again, not to keep it too political, but to end it off here, it's sort of similar to that, you know, south of the Mason-Dixon line, what a lot of people have been doing with the Confederate flag. It's sort of that, well, this is what I know and love, and it's a part of my identity. Therefore, I'm going to just keep doubling down, despite the fact that it may be, uh, you know, objectively not PC. Michael Narain from Brock University Sports Management Program. Really appreciate the time, as always. Thanks for doing this today. Yeah, no, thanks so much. Anytime. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.